We now open God's Word for the sermon this evening. This is our starting point. We turn to Luke chapter 13. I'll be reading verses 1 through 5. This is God's holy word as he inspired Luke, who, as he says at the beginning of this gospel account, uh, interviewed uh, eyewitnesses. He got the words from eyewitnesses, but of course this isn't just his best human effort to record what he figured he understood from the eyewitnesses, but this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, so it is the very word of God. It is an infallible, an inerrant account of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. So we read here uh, Luke chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 5. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. May we pray. Lord, we do thank you for your written word and for these reminders of the importance of repentance, that unless we repent and believe the gospel, that we will perish, not simply perish from this world in our bodies, but perish forever, which is the second death, the lake of fire. And so we pray that not only we, but many others around us would be granted repentance, help us to trust in Christ all the more and have assurance of faith through the sanctification and ongoing repentance we see in our lives. And also we pray that we would see more and more around us as we share the gospel coming to believe it, and turning from their sins. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, during his earthly ministry, our Lord spent much of his time proclaiming the kingdom of God, or what he also called the kingdom of heaven, saying that it was at hand and even in the midst of his disciples as he preached here on earth. And he made clear that entrance into that kingdom has to be accompanied by repentance. In Luke 13, Jesus speaks of two natural, or two disasters, not natural disasters, two disasters. Uh, One was a slaughter of people from Galilee on their way to the temple. So they appear to have been bringing their sacrifices to the temple. And so as Pontius Pilate apparently killed these people, uh, it's said that their blood was mingled with their sacrifices, as it were. And it is very likely that Pilate killed these people uh, because he believed, whether rightly or wrongly, that they 
were involved in some kind of rebellion or plotting and insurrection against Rome. The other disaster was less violent, perhaps, in the sense of of people shedding other people's blood, but it was a disaster when 18 were killed when a tower collapsed in Siloam. So presumably this would be the, the, the corner of Jerusalem known as Siloam. So apparently there was a tower there, and the tower collapsed, and 18 were killed. It's always tragic. This is the kind of thing that, of course, makes the nightly news in our daytime, or in our day when we see uh, uh, various disasters happen, tragedies befall men and women and children in this world. And it's always a question well, why did God let or make this happen? And one thing that we know from Scripture is that, yes, sometimes God does bring the sins of sinners upon their own heads, and of course no one could die in any accident or event in the world if it weren't for the existence of sin. We're all subject to death because of sin. We'll be dealing with that a great deal, Lord willing, when we get to 1 Corinthians 15 in our morning series. When we're talking about resurrection, we'll see that that death entered into the world through one man's sin, and so therefore resurrection can come about because of one man as well. But it isn't a fact that we know for sure that any time some great tragedy befalls an individual, that that was because that person particularly deserved it more than others. That's just not the way God works in the world. And Job's friends made the false assumption that when Job was being afflicted, that it was because he was somehow less righteous than others. Indeed, that he had somehow offended God. And they kept asking Job, what did you do? And Job said, I don't know. I thought I was doing everything right. And in fact, he was correct. It was God who had called his righteousness to the attention of Satan. And Satan said, well, take away the things that you've given him, and then he'll curse you. He won't be righteous anymore. And the Lord said, go ahead and do everything. Take away everything, including his health and his family. Just don't take his life, and we'll see. Of course, the Lord knew what was in Job's heart. So we know that it's a mistake to assume that if someone some tragedy befalls someone that they were particularly more sinful than others, and that's exactly what Jesus says here. Jesus points out that all of us, because of sin, are subject to these kinds of things. God was not singling out the victims of these disasters for special punishment. Similarly, without true repentance, each of us will perish eternally, as surely as those people perished physically. That's the lesson that Jesus draws from this. Now repentance in this sense, when Jesus says here uh, twice in this passage, I tell you that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When he says that, he's talking there about something that we call repentance unto life. This is not just the sense of being sorry for our sins, 
because we'd like to avoid their consequences, right? But rather, it's a true turning from sin unto God. That's really what repentance means. The Hebrew term for repentance means to turn around, usually. Uh, and I've often used the illustration that if you were to get on an interstate, say you got on I-70 down at Abilene, I used this illustration not long ago for something. If you were to get on I-70 down at Abilene and you're trying to head to Kansas City and, and you start seeing signs that are telling you you're getting closer to Denver, uh, you know you're going the wrong direction. And so you admit it. Oh, I was wrong. I got on the wrong entrance ramp. I'm going the wrong way. That's not repentance. Not until you find an exit ramp and you get off and you get on the highway going the other way toward Kansas City. Uh, Repentance is a change of direction. The Greek term for repentance that's used uh, in the New Testament is metanoia. It literally means to change your mind. But it isn't changing your mind in the simple sense of saying, like, uh, last week one day I, I... thought that I would order pizza for my family. I was trying to give Kim a little bit of a break for lunch one day, and I offered to order pizza. And then I changed my mind, and I said, hey, would you rather get burgers from the brew house instead? And so that's what I I called brew house, and we ordered burgers there. In fact, when Kim went to pick them up, Larissa was was working that day. Um, So it's not just that kind of change of mind. You know, I, I wanted ice cream but decided to have a cookie right no um, it's it's more like when you change the oil in your car you take all of the oil out you drain all of the old oil out and you put new oil in it's more like having a mind transplant so to speak god takes out the old mind and puts a new mind in a mind that is godly it's a whole change of attitude a hatred of sin because we love God and sin offends Him. That's what our confession calls repentance unto life. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. Should I should just stop there? No, what does that mean? An evangelical grace. A gospel grace. So a free gift from God that goes along with being born again. That repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. So repentance and saving faith have to go hand in hand in our doctrine. They, they have to be preached together. For one thing, if we preach the good news of salvation, what makes it good news? Why is it good news that Jesus has paid for your sins? Well, because you can't, and you are a sinner. Right? So people have to hear the bad news first and know that here's God's standard of holiness and righteousness. This is what he expects of you if you're to dwell in his presence forever and not be cast into hell. And you can't do it. You've already failed. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Jesus did it in your place. And he died for your sins. If you trust in him, you will be saved. But trusting in him involves repentance, turning from our sins. In Luke 24, 47, Jesus declares that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's what he says to his disciples. 
Jesus' first words in the Gospel according to Mark are, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. In Acts 20, verse 21, Paul describes his own ministry as testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see those two things go together, repentance and faith. And when we're talking here about repentance unto life, we're talking about that initial repentance, that initial turning from sin that goes along with being born again, that brings you into this new life by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not something that you do yourself, but it's a gift from God, as we saw. It was an evangelical grace, as the confession rightly calls it. And it will produce a life of repentance. The confession says, by it, by this repentance, right, a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ, to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins, as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. So by this repentance, the sinner uh, recognizes not only do I not want to be punished by God? That's part of it. There's, there's a part of that fear, that healthy fear of recognizing, uh, I am a sinner before the holy God. What will he do with me? And I don't want that. But it has to be more than that. So it's partly that, but it has to be more. So this confession rightly says, not only out of that sense of danger, but also recognizing the filthiness and odiousness. So the dirtiness and the stink. That's really what those mean. How these our sins smell bad before God. They're contrary to God's holy and righteous nature. And also, what the Westminster Divines mean here is that the true repentance doesn't just come from this fear of judgment, but also from a love of God and an understanding of His holy nature And then recognizing that, yes, he's holy. Yes, he must punish my sins, but he's punished them in Christ. And so if I flee to Christ, not if I flee from God who will judge me, but if I flee to him in Christ, he's merciful. That's repentance unto life. You know, if a child loves his parents, he wants them to be pleased with him. If I love my wife, I want her to be pleased with me. I remember a a dear brother in Christ, a retired pastor. Some of you may have known him, Robert LeMay. He passed away a few years ago. Uh, He had one time been the pastor in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, I knew him after his retirement, and he was living in Iowa. Uh, But I remember him saying, you know, I'm not physically afraid of my wife, you know, she's a lot smaller than I am, and on the one hand, and, and I trust her not to do anything to me when I'm asleep or anything like that. It says, I'm not physically afraid of her, but I fear displeasing her because I love her. And that was his illustration of the kind of fear and love of the Lord that godly people have. 
So my love for God should awaken me to how disgusting, how filthy and odious, as the confession says, my sins are to him because he's holy. He can't abide those sins in his holy presence. But at the same time, I'm also aware of the great mercy of God in Christ. And so I flee from not God, but my sins, and I run to him. As Paul says in Romans 8, we endeavor to be dead to sin and alive to God. So I'm therefore grieved by my sin, and I learn to hate my sin as God does. Psalm 51.4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, David says. Well, David's actually recalling his sin with Bathsheba. He actually sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against her husband. He sinned against his own family. He sinned against her family. But when he's coming to repent, he's recognizing ultimately all sins are against the Lord, and the Lord was filling his vision, as it were, at that time. And so he says, so against you, ultimately you only, if I sinned. And he begs to be forgiven. Of course, David was already alive in the spirit at that point. That was an on, part of his ongoing repentance. But that's a, an illustration of what repentance is. Psalm 119, verse 125, I consider your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. So we start to hate that which God hates and love that which God loves. Out of this love for God and hatred of my sin, then, I intend to obey him and labor at righteousness. Psalm 119, verse 106. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. Now, we have to be careful to remember this is not dependent on on the individual somehow making satisfaction for his or her own sins, though. It's only Christ that has made satisfaction between us and God. Christ alone achieves my atonement or your atonement and reconciliation with God. But this repentance unto life that comes along with being born again is something that is granted because of Christ's accomplished work, and it will also then result and be shown in an ongoing repentance in the believer. The confession says, although repentance be not to be rested in any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ. So in other words, it's a free gift from God because Christ accomplished your righteousness before the Lord. Yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. So what they're saying is, you're saved by Christ, but if you're saved by Christ, you can't expect that you won't have repented. You must repent. If you have not repented, you can't believe that you are actually in Christ and that he has paid for your sins. So only Christ as mediator has made any satisfaction between you and God. He made satisfaction for sin on the cross, as we've already seen previously in this series. Nevertheless, just as saving faith is always accompanied by sanctification, it is also always accompanied by repentance. In fact, those two things go hand in hand. Part of your progressive sanctification is, a, is your initial repentance and ongoing repentance. If I've never repented, I'm not saved. 
I have no reason to believe I am. Twice in our reading from Luke 13, we noted that Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And if I do repent, if I engage in true repentance that can only come from a regenerate heart, that it's a grace of God, that repentance becomes an assurance of salvation. As the confession states, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Every sin deserves the wrath and the curse of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So the confession rightly says, there's no sin so small that it doesn't deserve God's full condemnation. Every sin is ultimately against God, and God is infinite and perfect. So the perfect and infinite judge, uh, if any uh, sin is committed against him, that sin is of infinite grief to him. It's an infinite offense. There's no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, as the confession says. But also there's no sin so great that Jesus isn't valuable enough to pay for it. Galatians 3.10, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But because I rest not on my own merits, but on the merits of Christ, no sin can get me unsaved. No sin is too great for him to have paid for. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not There's no condemnation up to a point for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, there's mostly not any condemnation for the... No, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid it all. Now again, this has to be a true repentance, a true change of attitude and hatred of sin, not just a general statement of acknowledgement that, you know, God is good and sin is bad. Yes, I know. Blah, blah. Right? No, that's, that's not going to, to count as true repentance, and that's not evidence of a changed heart. So rather, I have to, as somebody who loves the Lord, endeavor to kill every sin remaining in me. And so the confession rightly says, men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. So I need to work through my life at identifying each sin, and repenting particularly of that sin. This was actually the first of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. He pointed out that the Roman church had redefined sin and repentance so that men could go on sinning with impunity, not truly repenting, and thinking that they were saved because they had paid some money to get themselves out of purgatory later on. Rather, Luther pointed out the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's not just, well, I I repented ten years ago. right? No, it's going to be an ongoing life of repentance. In 1 Timothy, Paul continues to Uh, condemn his own former sins as a persecutor of the church, he continues repenting of it. Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you 
and did not cover my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David was engaging in ongoing repentance in his life. And so confessing our sins and our prayers and relying on God's grace, not our own willpower, to overcome it is necessary. And the confession concludes this chapter by saying, As every man is bound to make private confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof, upon which and the forsaking of them he shall find mercy. So it isn't just that we confess them, but that we forsake them, then we find mercy. As John tells us in 1 John, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and God's word is not in us. But if we confess our sins, we know that he is faithful and just to forgive them. The reason he's just to forgive them is because Christ already paid for them, and it would be a sort of double jeopardy if you were condemned for sins that Christ was already condemned for. So if you confess your sins to God and turn from them unto Christ, then your sins are forgiven, and God is faithful and just to do that. So as the confession says, that we pray for the pardon of our sins, upon which in the forsaking of them he shall find mercy. So he that scandalizeth his brother or the church of Christ ought to be willing by a private or public confession and sorrow for his sin to declare his repentance to those that are offended who are thereupon to be reconciled to him and in love to receive him. So private sins are to be repented of privately and public sins publicly. That's one of the things that the confessions there are saying. Proverbs 28.13, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. James 5.10, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, Jesus says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So we have to confess, not just to God, but to one another as we have offended one another and asked for forgiveness. And we are to grant that forgiveness when another repents to us. A repentant brother, therefore, is to be forgiven and received back into relationship, into fellowship with us. (coughs) a testimony of reconciliation earlier in the prayer requests this evening. We'll deal with the topic of the unrepentant when we get to the chapter on church discipline, but, but this is what we do. We repent and we forgive. So how do you know that you're saved? One easy way to test if you are saved is to examine yourself. See if you're truly living a repentant life. That self-examination is vital. We point out how important it is every time we come to the Lord's table, especially. Because Paul, in particular, in 1 Corinthians 11, tells us that we have to examine ourselves before we come to the Lord's table. There was an earlier version of of our RP statement on communion that, that says, when it comes to that part of the warning, the words of warning, says, it is my solemn duty to warn the uninstructed, the profane, the scandalous, and those who secretly and impenitently live in any sin, not to approach the holy table, lest they partake unworthily, not discerning the Lord's body. 
and so eat and drink condemnation to themselves. Nevertheless, this warning is not designed to keep the humble and contrite, that is, the repentant, away from the table of the Lord, as if it were for those who might be free from sin. On the contrary, we who are invited to the supper are coming as guilty and polluted sinners, and without hope of eternal life, apart from the grace of God in Christ, confess our dependence for pardon and cleansing upon the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Base our hopes of eternal life upon his obedience and righteousness, and humbly resolve to deny ourselves, crucify our sinful natures, and follow Christ as becomes those who bear his name. Let us therefore, in accordance with the admonition of the Apostle Paul, examine our minds and hearts to determine whether such discernment is ours, to the end that we may partake to the glory of God and to our own growth in grace. Have you turned from your sins? If you have, at that time of of coming to Christ, turned from your sinfulness unto him, that's your repentance unto life, and that results then in an ongoing process of repentance through your life. So continue to repent, continue to turn from sin, continue to consider yourself, as Paul says in Romans 8, dead to sin and alive to God. Let's pray. Lord, make us truly repentant, we pray. Help us to hate our sins and to forsake them, to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness, to be dead unto sin and alive to God, because we love you. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus, and that we do not have to turn from these sins by our own willpower, but by the power that you have granted us by the Holy Spirit. So strengthen us, conform us to Christ's image that we might more and more hate sin and love that which you love, even as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.